Jesus the King, the one who we submit our lives to, the one who we surrender to. I've been a Christian 43 years now, and I remember when God brought me to that place of surrender. And uh, he's been a faithful God ever since. Never let me down. So, this morning, we're looking at Jesus, the servant king, John chapter 13. And as I thought about this, I thought, well, is there such a thing as a servant king? Surely that is a contradiction in terms. A king is one who rules, has complete authority over his subjects of his kingdom. I mean, say... The queen today doesn't have masses of authority. But going back years, when King Henry and others were on the throne, if you crossed the king, it was off with your head. If you disobeyed the king, went against his edict, you were slung into the tower or wherever. A king is to be obeyed or you suffer the consequences. Whereas a servant is one who submits to the authority of the king. The one who submits the authority of his master. The one who is there to do his master's bidding. Totally different contrast, isn't there? And humanly speaking, I don't think there could ever be such a thing as a servant king. But we're not concerning ourselves this morning with any ordinary human being. And as we've seen over the past few weeks... John's gospel makes it abundantly clear to all that Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, etc., etc. John came and testified to the deity of Jesus, saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus himself affirmed who he was through what he said and what he did. He was and he is God. He's the one we worship. We can look at the Old Testament as well as the Gospels. So that Jesus declared the coming Messiah and King to establish his kingdom. Zechariah prophesied, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold your what? Your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom, his kingdom, come. He is the king of his kingdom. And guess what? You are part of that kingdom. So who are we to submit to? Who are we to surrender to? Who are we to walk with and obey? Jesus as our Lord and King. So turn to uh, John chapter 13. It'll come up on there if you haven't uh, got your Bible with with you. And in mine it says Jesus washes the disciples' feet as the heading. And it says this, John writes, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. I find this next bit of Scripture, one of the most moving bits of Scripture in the whole of the Bible, as long as some others. It says, he, that's Jesus, 
laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. This is the king of glory. This is God in the flesh. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I find that absolutely amazing. You know, we live, don't we, in a very proud and arrogant generation. I was reading the other week, apparently it is now considered acceptable and even normal for people to mope themselves, to praise themselves, and to put themselves first. That is the society we live in. Pride, this writer said, is considered a virtue by many. And I thought, crumbs, what a contrast to Jesus. Humility, on the other hand, is considered as a weakness. Everyone, to me, it seems is screaming to have their own rights. It's my right for this, that and the other. To be recognised as somebody being important. Jesus was not one of them. He was the one person who always thought of others before himself. My wife puts me to shame on that score. She always thinks of others before herself. In fact, I have to tell her to start thinking about herself a bit more. But Jesus is the ultimate example of humility for all time, which is all that John 13 is about, the humility and servanthood of Jesus. It says on the first day of the week, Jesus had entered Jerusalem in triumph. This was on Psalm Psalm Sunday to the enthusiastic shouts of the people. Those people, they were shouting, Hosanna! They expected Jesus to come and vanquish Rome, to defeat the the Romans and vanquish uh, Jerusalem of them, to come and conquer them. They misunderstood his ministry and his message. The Passover in a few days' time was about to be celebrated. And very soon Jesus would be rejected by these very same people and put to death. Jesus would die as the pure, the true Passover lamb and final sacrifice for sin. It says in John 1.11, he had come to his own people, that's the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus, we find now, on this Thursday evening, before Good Friday, before his execution, he's with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. This, you've got to remember, the time scale is about between 6.30 and 11.30 on the Thursday evening. The following, I think it was about 1 a.m., some people say, that Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. So just think, this is a few hours before Jesus' death and, well, not resurrection, but certainly his death. Jesus was a man on a mission. Sent by his father to be the saviour of the world, which he willingly accepted. He knew this meant leaving heaven, coming down to earth and becoming fully human. Living a sinless life in a world full of temptation, sin and depravity. Jesus was to become the perfect sinless sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, to bring healing, wholeness and forgiveness to a needy world. 
He came to demonstrate God's love, grace, mercy and forgiveness. To reveal God's character and all that he did and he said. And yet, at this moment, rather than being preoccupied with his own concerns about what was going to happen to him in a few hours' time, he was going to face crucifixion. That must have been on his mind. And yet, he does a remarkable act of love and of service, showing great love, grace, and humility. You see, in those days, there were very few paved roads. People walked about, didn't they, in sandals. They were open sandals. So you can imagine the state of their feet. After walking miles, they would be dirty, wouldn't they? Maybe a bit smelly. Anybody like handling other people's feet here? No chiropodists here. You see, when you arrived at a place where you were staying, you'd find in the entrance a large jug, if not a jug, a large bowl plus water for washing dirty feet. And normally foot washing was the domain of the lowliest slave of all. You couldn't get any lower as a slave than a foot washer. That was the, the task of the slave. And when guests came, the slave would go to the door, wash the visitor's feet. Not a pleasant task. You didn't find people queuing up to wash one another's feet in those days. Yet when Jesus and disciples arrived at the upper room... They found the jug, the water, but hey-ho, no servant to wash anybody's feet. The resources were there, all that they needed to perform the task. But none of the disciples was prepared to lower himself, to humble himself, to serve the others in this menial of all tasks. I wonder what they were thinking. Do you? There's no slave here to wash our feet. Oh, we'll, we'll just leave it then. Perhaps they went to see who would make the first move. Maybe they were thinking, I'm not washing Andrew's feet. Have you seen the state of his feet and his toenails and he's got bunions? No way am I going to touch his feet. Remember, there were no latex gloves in those days. It was bare skin against bare skin. Maybe Luke was thinking, Well, I'm a doctor. I'm a man of prominence, a man of intellect. Peter and John should be washing my feet. They're just fishermen. And as for Matthew, come on, he's just a tax collector, or was. Yet, if that was going on in their minds, cast you back to a few days earlier. Jesus said this to his disciples, Matthew 20, 26. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Did you hear that? Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among all shall be your slave. The disciples, I think when Jesus said that, it went straight over their heads. As I said, Jesus knew his mission, didn't he? He knew why he'd come. It involved casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. But was washing people's feet on the job description, on the list of things he should do, on the list of requirements? He didn't say, oh no, sorry God, sorry Father, that's not my job description. Now healing the sick, 
Raising the dead advances the gospel. I can understand that. But not feet washing. No, 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 no. That's not my ministry. That's not what I'm called to do. That's not my gifting. How does this advance the gospel, Father? How does that affect us? You see, yet we see here Jesus rising from the meal table and taking off his outer garments. And the disciples must have been wondering what on earth he was about to do. Then, I find this amazing, Jesus kneels before each disciple. The bowl of water, the towel, and he begins to wash their feet. What an amazing act of love, of service, of grace, commitment. What humility. Verse 1 says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end in the Greek is eos telos. I don't know if that's pronounced right, but it doesn't matter. And it means he loved them to perfection. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them with total fullness of love. And guess what? That's how he loves you and me. Remember, as I've said, this was just a few hours before Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane, his trial and crucifixion. Jesus had a lot on his mind. He shouldn't have really been ministering to these guys. They should have been ministering to him in his hour of need. Yet he willingly puts his own thoughts and worries aside and seeks to serve his disciples in this lowliest of all tasks. I don't know about you, but reading this makes me feel ashamed of my actions, reactions, and concerns for my own needs above those of others. The disciples were all gobsmacked when Jesus did this. No one said a word as Jesus proceeded. Not one disciple said anything. You can imagine them nudging one and whispering, what's he doing? Maybe they didn't know what to say. Or if they said something, it might be the wrong thing. Maybe they were embarrassed. Maybe they felt ashamed that they never offered to serve him or one another in the same way. It made me wonder, will I feel ashamed when I stand before Jesus on Judgment Day? Will you feel ashamed when you stand before Jesus, when he asks us to give an account, yeah, we're saved. We're saved. We're not going to be judged whether we go to heaven or hell. We've been saved. We've given our lives, accepted Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But we will be judged on what we've done since we became Christians. And you know something? We'll have no excuses. Because just like the disciples, all the resources are there for us. The disciples chose to ignore because of pride and other things. What will we choose to do while we're part of his kingdom? Will we choose to serve him, to serve the church? And let me just say, oh, I'll serve Jesus. I've heard people say this, but the church, I've got no time for the church. How dare they? You cannot separate Jesus and the church. 
When you accept Jesus, you become part of the church, part of his family. Jesus gave his very life for the church. Are we to expect any less? God asks us. We've been singing this morning, I surrender all. Do we? Do we? Do we surrender all? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Do we really say that? Or do we say, oh no, God, you can't expect me to do that. You can't expect me to to do this or that or serve in that way or serve in that way. Why not? What does this passage say to us? Do we think more highly of ourselves than we should? Are we willing to do the lowly, menial tasks? Or do we always want to be seen to be doing the spiritual things? The spiritual tasks. Let me ask you this morning a question. I don't need an answer. But what is more spiritual? Being at the prayer meeting or life group? Or being in the pub sharing your faith with non-believers? Prophesying on a Sunday morning or visiting the lonely? Which is more spiritual? Think about it. The problem many people have is that they pigeonhole and categorize activities into spiritual and non-spiritual. Do you know there's no such thing? There's no such thing as spiritual or religious activities and non-spiritual and non-religious activities. Well, I suppose you can make exceptions, but on generally I'm speaking... Was Jesus' humble act of washing his disciples' feet more spiritual than raising Lazarus from the dead? That's a good question, isn't it? Something for you to discuss in life group. You see, the question behind everything that we do is what is our motive? What is our motive for doing what we do? Is it because, oh, it's my duty? Or I'm expected to do this? Or is that of love for Jesus saying, God, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. I dare any of you to pray that prayer this week. Whatever you want me to do, God, I will do it. I prayed that prayer 43 years ago. And many of you know our story, so I'm not going to go into that now. But it's the greatest thing you can ever do. Put your life in the hand of the Father. One commentator says this, and here is the great lesson of this whole account. Only absolute humility can generate absolute love. It is the nature of love to be selfless giving. In 1 Corinthians 13:5, Paul said that love does not seek its own. In fact, to distill all the truth of 1 Corinthians 13 into one statement, we might say that the greatest virtue of love is its humility, for it is the humility of love that proves and makes it visible. See, in our charismatic churches, we contend to elevate and promote such ministries as healing, preaching, worship leading, etc., And gifts like prophecy, words of knowledge, tongues, interpretation, all good. I'm not decrying those at all. They're all valid and important. But we can do it at the expense of practical mercy ministries. 
of love, care and concern for those in need. We need to have both in the church. One is not more important than the other. One is not more spiritual than the other. Jesus came and did both. He was an example to us and so should we. Jesus our servant king. Listen what the servant king says in Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Are those spiritual things? Jesus didn't say, for I was hungry and you brought me your lovely worship songs. Or you spoke in tongues and then you prophesied over me. No, he didn't say that. And in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, he said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Let's not elevate spiritual gifts above Acts of mercy and love and care. You see, none of the disciples says a word as Jesus proceeds to wash their feet. Until he comes to my favorite character, named after me. Well, he's not named after me. He's got the same name as me. In many respects, I'm a bit like him. He is the one who will verbally express and say what he thinks. I just love Peter. He doesn't always engage this before this. But we've got wonderful things in the Bible because of that. Coming on in 13.6, it says, He came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed or bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So he comes to Simon Peter. Who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I think Peter came to a startling realization of what was actually taking place. See, when Jesus had questioned uh, his disciples a few days earlier regarding his identity, what did Peter do? He immediately blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I think this dawned on Peter. This is, no, you you can't wash my feet. I wonder if Peter withdrew his feet from the hands of Jesus. You're the king of glory. You're the Messiah. How can you wash my feet? He should be the one washing Christ's feet. 
See, in those days, well, let me just finish this bit here. And it seems it's not Jesus' answer. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. See, in those days, people would have a bath in the morning. There used to be communal bathing, all sorts. But apparently, what I looked up was most Greeks and Jews, some Jews, had a private little courthouse where they bathed. Now, obviously, as they went about their daily business, they'd wash themselves from head to feet, yeah? But if they're walking about their daily business, what happened to their feet with open-toed sandals? They got dirty, didn't they? So they had to wash them. And Jesus was saying here, which we need to take note of, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. Now, that washing, when we've had a bath, we don't need to wash again, do we? Well, we do, but you know what I mean. Jesus is talking about our spiritual rebirth here. If you've come this morning, if you're not a Christian this morning, let me tell you, you need to have a bath. Jesus needs to come into your life and he comes in to cleanse you. When we kneel at the cross, Jesus comes. I remember when I knelt at the cross, the sense of cleansing and forgiveness that came, that God comes and cleanses us. So we don't need to have a bath again. But as we walk, we don't need to go back and and, and repent like that again. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We're declared righteous in God's eyes. But as we walk about this world, guess what? Things we see on the television, things that we hear, things that come into mind, things that we say, the way we react, etc. We pick up the dirt of the world, don't we? We live in a sin-sodden world with all the temptations. And we need to come to God and say, God, just, just wash my feet again, as it were. That's why I love that verse when I got saved afterwards. If we confess our sins, Jesus, faithful and just, forgives our sins and what? Cleanses from all unrighteousness. We have to wash off the dirt and grime of walking in the world. John MacArthur says this, There is profound meaning in Jesus' words. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You see, the typical Jewish mindset could not accept the Messiah humiliated. In Peter's mind, there was no place for Christ to be humiliated like this. He must be made to realize that Christ came to be humiliated. And that struck me when I read that. I thought, Jesus came to be humiliated. If Peter could not accept this act of humiliation, he would certainly have trouble in accepting what Jesus would do for him on the cross. I love Peter's response when he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head also. You see, Peter goes from one extreme to the other, doesn't he? But you can see his motive is one of love for his saviour and his surrender to him. He won't settle for half measures. It's the whole deal. It's all or nothing with Peter. And let me tell you this morning, if you're not Christian, if you are a Christian this morning, there's no half measures with God. He wants you lock, stock and barrel. There's no saying, well, I'll have Jesus as my saviour, which used to be preached many, many moons ago, but I don't want him as Lord. You know, I want my salvation. I want my ticket to heaven. But Jesus, I don't have to follow you. Part of becoming a Christian is that we lay down our lives and we follow Christ. We follow Christ, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. We follow Jesus. 
And it is so worth it. It is so worth it. You may not be, end up being the richest person in the world. You may not have all the trappings that this world has to offer. But let me tell you, you'll get what this world can never give. You'll get joy in your heart. You'll get peace in living. You'll get satisfaction in knowing that you are God's child. And whatever happens, wherever you go, God will lead you and guide you and direct you. It is wonderful being a child of God. And if you're not a child of God this morning, get down on your knees and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and become a child of God. Because he promises never to leave you nor forsake you. Right, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Listen, if you know these things, blessed, happy are you if you what? Do them. Do them. Do them. You see, some people believe, and in some churches, that Jesus was instituting an ordinance like baptism and communion, of feet washing, where you have a feet washing service. I hate it when I see churches advertising feet washing services. Sorry, but that's just me. Because to me, they have missed the whole point of what Jesus said in John 13. Jesus was not advocating a formal ritualistic foot washing service. He was demonstrating his humility and his servanthood and his example that we as his disciples should follow in. He's not saying do the same thing I have done. He's saying behave in the same manner as I have behaved. The example we are to follow is not the washing of someone's feet. I would not want to do that anyway. And I'm glad he doesn't expect us to do it. But he does expect us to act with humility And be servants of one another and of him. That's what he's talking about here. We mustn't make foot washing the important fact of John 13. It's nothing about foot washing. It's about humility and servanthood that Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples and to us who would follow on. You see, love has to be seen in action. The Apostle John wrote, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.18. You see, love that is real love is expressed in action, not just words. You see, Jesus acted with humility and servanthood. And it results in a loving service. We need to see that we are called to do menial and maybe humiliating tasks for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of the gospel. This is what I believe demonstrates true spirituality. Bible commenter John MacArthur again says this, Some people seem to think that the nearer you get to God, the further you must be away from men. But that's not true. Actually, proximity to God 
is to serve someone else. I think that's really good. Proximity to God is to serve someone else. Matthew 20. Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In terms of sacrificing to serve others, there was never anything Jesus was not willing to do. Why should we be any different? There's nothing Jesus was not willing to do. Why should we be any different? Oh no, I'm not going to clean the loose. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to... All these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, happy are you if you do them. Do you want to be blessed this morning? Do you want to be fulfilled? Do you want to be happy? Then develop a true servant's heart. Jesus is our Lord, our Saviour and King. We are his sons and daughters, but we are also his servants. And I find this sometimes amongst Christians. Because we are his sons and daughters, some Christians think, well, I don't need to serve him. I'm not a servant. I don't know where they've picked that up from. We are called as servants. Yeah, we're sons and daughters. But we're also servants. Never let us forget that. We're servants of the Most High God. To do his will. To advance his gospel. To see his kingdom come. Listen. If Jesus can step down from a place of divinity or deity to become a man, then further humble himself to be a servant and wash the feet of 12 undeserving sinners, these were, we ought to be willing to suffer any shame or embarrassment to serve him. That is true love and true humility. Now, I don't always measure up to that. So don't think I'm putting myself on personal. I don't. But this is the ideal that I'm aiming for. I say, after, ask God, forgive me. I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have acted there. You know, during World War II, many cathedrals in Europe suffered damage as a result of bombing raids. One bomb blew the hands off a statue of Christ. And though the cathedral was repaired, the statue of Christ stands today with his hands missing. And there's an inscription on the pedestal which reads, Christ have no hands but yours. Christ have no hands but yours. Christ, this morning, has no hands but yours. He has no feet but yours. He calls you to follow after him, to walk with him, to be his hands and his feet. What work does Christ set his servants to do? We are to serve others, whether they are non-believers or believers, and be willing to do literally anything, however costly, tedious, or humiliating, in order to help them. This is what true humility, true love means. Steve was alluding to the meeting on Wednesday, was it? Yeah. Abby's called for people to help 
in the children's work. I know there's mention about people helping on the welcome team and things. Are we all serving in the church? Are we all doing our part? I can say this now because I'm not the pastor anymore. And Steve's sitting there going, go on, Pete, keep going. That's not what I'd be saying. But listen, we're called the family, Sutton Family Church. I love my biological family and I love my church family. And there's nothing I would rather do for my biological family than to serve them, which we often do now. We're, we're, we're not working full time, we're retired. But we're also called to serve our church family. We're called to carry our bit of the weight, to pull our part, to give, to serve. So really, what I'm saying is, go away this this week and say, what am I doing to serve the church? And don't think, well, serving the church, again, you don't separate serving the church from serving Jesus. He's put you in the family of God, all you new members that came in the other week. Where are you serving in the church? Want everyone pulling his weight. We don't want the few carrying the work and getting worn out and tired out when others should be putting their sixpenneth in. This week, let's think how we can serve those in the church And those outside the church. What random acts of kindness can we do to our neighbours, to our friends? You see, if we're to reach this borough for Christ, we must learn how, just like Jesus, in humility to serve this community. By doing what seems menial tasks, the glory of Christ. So to finish, from what we read in this passage, I've turned this whole sermon back ways around. So I'm, I'm finishing with my four points. <laughs> I believe what we've learned in this passion, this passion reveals four things, probably more, but four things that I think we need to highlight, that we need to take on board. Firstly, we need to recognize who Jesus is. He's our Lord and Savior. He's our Lord and Saviour and our King. And we should respond accordingly. We should respond accordingly. There shouldn't be anybody saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm not going to do that. Or I can't do that. We need to recognise our pride and our lack of humility. These are hard things. And... Speaking to myself here as well, I count myself amongst you. These are things that hit me. We need to recognize the example and the humility of Jesus. He set this an example for us to follow. And we need to recognize we're called to serve in the same way as Jesus did. Whatever task, whether it be putting out chairs Leading worship, leading life group, serving tea or coffee, preaching, whatever. We're called to serve in the same way Jesus did. And we're going to be so bold as to say, don't think, well, I just do, you just do one job. I think we need people who can do a few jobs.
Okay, I'll leave that. I'll throw that one in. See, Jesus is truly the servant king. Let us serve him as he deserves. Let us serve him as he deserves. Do we value, do you value your salvation? Do you thank God that he saved you from the wrath to come? Do you thank God that he's given you all you have for life and godliness to live in this life? Let's show our gratitude, not in just words, but in actions. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing, because I just think this calls for response of worship. We're going to sing King of Kings, Majesty. And I love the chorus. I live to what? To serve your majesty. That's what we're here for, to serve his majesty. Amen.